This is Bumping Into, where we have interesting conversations with people from all walks of life. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Bumping Into, the first episode release for 2022. Uh, My guest today is Professor Lisa Weller. Lisa is a professor of digital communication at RMIT. Areas of interest uh, particularly include uh, the news media, research methodologies for journalism, media representation in the legal system, and regional news. At the moment, there is a lot of distrust uh, in the media, um, a lot of people turning to alternative news sources. Uh, It can seem like the media is almost a messenger, and it is very hard to know who to trust, where to trust, where to look for, for reliable news. Is there an agenda? Is there, a, a, I suppose, an agreement about what is said and what isn't being said? So it, it is extremely complicated, uh, extremely complicated times at the moment, and it's very hard to know where to turn for a reliable news source, especially one that isn't influenced by opinion, um, which is the current, I suppose, trend. E- even if you look at various mainstream um, television news, there is segments donated to it within that within that time frame, just purely based on opinion, and those people present an opinion that is designed to make you and others feel as if that opinion is the majority. You know, you either resonate with it or you turn hardly against it. It's not, I suppose, a, a traditional news setting as, as once was known. Um, we also talk about newspapers. Um, look, we cover a lot um, very loosely, very broadly. It's a, it's a grassroots conversation, which is very much what, what all of these conversations are. Um, you know, there's no diving deep down into rabbit holes, but it is, I suppose, scratching the surface about how all the wheels come together, um, what influences the media does have. Um, we talk about defamation laws and, and, I suppose, you know, restraints that the journalists do have about what they want to present. Overall, anyone that's interested in the media, interested in, in how it all comes together, be that print or digital, uh, mainstream, one thing I will say is it, it is very important to support independent journalism. So wherever you choose to get your, your news from, keep an open mind. Um, just remember that you know the independent journalists typically aren't being guided or steered in a direction. Um, they're reporting based on what they discover, and and I suppose, like all things, um, you know you really want to throw your support behind the small independents that do it because they love it and for the passion of bringing that news to the people, um, not for the advertisers. So if you are in a position to support any form of independent journalism, I do encourage you to do so. And now here is the interview with Professor Lisa Weller. Hi, Francis. Lisa, how are you going? I'm all right. Thank you very much for, for your time. Oh, look, apologies again for missing our time this morning. How confused am I about where I am and what the time is? Oh, did, what, did the time zones get you? Yeah, the time zones got me. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to start today, if I could. Um, so I've got some questions around some of the work you do. But mm-hmm. so a, as I think I mentioned, I, I've discovered yourself on a podcast that you had done on um, 3CR radio. But yeah. my first thing is I, I actually wanted to ask about the history of you. I, I'm curious to see how someone, like your story, how you ended up as a, as a professor at RMIT, like what's the back end 
to how all those those bits came together? Well, I was a journalist for 20 years. Um, so I started on the Canberra Times in the mid-'80s alongside people like Chris Yulman and, uh, from the ABC and Lenore Taylor, who's the current editor of The Guardian, and, um, and um, Karen Middleton, who was at SBS as the chief political correspondent for a long time. So really that golden age of newspapers in the 80s that produced a lot of um, exciting young journalists at the time, but also a lot of opportunities for people. Um, So I trained there and then I moved to the Australian in Sydney and then I went to work at the Financial Review. Um, And then not that I had a crystal ball at all. I actually had a period of illness um, in that millennium period, like 1999, 2000. And back then, honestly, working at the Financial Review in the industry, it was like um, getting a gig on Treasure Island because it was so well-resourced, it was so intelligent, such great journalism was coming out of there. And in comparison to, say, working somewhere like the Australian where I'd been previous to that, um, it it was a much more intelligent, kinder, you know, lovely workplace. Anyway, I, I, I was working there. I got sick. I came back to work after many, many weeks of being off on paid sick leave and everything had changed at the Finn in that time. I came back. It was like I walked into a different place. And I just had this sense, if this is happening here at the kind of pinnacle, like in the best newsroom in Australia from the point of view of being a journalist, you know, no blood, no, you know, all the crime was just corporate that we dealt with. Um, you know, it was this great space to work in. So if things are, have turned a bit bad here, what is happening out in the industry more broadly? Maybe it's time to develop a plan B. Wow. So it was before all the, you know, it was before all the mass redundancies and all of that. But so I'm not saying I had a crystal ball, but I'd stepped out. I came back. I thought, hmm. You know, we're going back to a kind of Fordist production line away from a really bespoke production of sections of the financial review. There's no more fruit platters and glasses of wine after work on a Friday. There's no masseuse giving everybody a massage when we all get a bit stressed out. Like, it's really changed. Um, And so I went back to university at that point. I left the industry and went back to uni. Oh, and I decided it was much more interesting to actually study journalism at that point than it was to practice it. And could you pinpoint what was there? Was it a, a change in person? Like was, you know, often a workplace, one person can come in and be quite destructive to a culture. Is it, was it that or was it that advertising was starting to dry up and then, you know, the cutbacks set in and cutbacks create pressure? Or was, there, was there any one marker that you could see what caused that rapid change well we all knew uh, there'd been there'd been really big industrial action at fairfax probably in the year before that over paying conditions and that had, that had turned quite ugly so there was this kind of industrial the industrial environment wasn't great between the workers and the and fairfax um but the other thing was we all knew that they'd had the bean counters in so they'd had bean counters in to look at ways of rationalising the operation and trying to save money. Um, And so some of those hallmarks of quality journalism 
were starting to disappear. You know, it's just that idea, how you treat your staff, how you, uh, how you treat your people and the time and resources and everything that you give them to work together and to do their work um, make, it, make a big difference. So I came back in after that kind of audit culture had started at Fairfax and obviously they were looking for cost. They were already starting to look for cost savings. Um, so, you know, back then I think there was one computer on the floor that you could access the internet from. So, you know, we're talking pre-digital or the, the kind of start of that at the very start of that period. You know, we're talking about 2002, 2003, that kind of period, which, you know, we, we forget how, how much the world's changed since we're, 2.0. Yeah, you know, Twitter only started in 2008. Um, because that was one of my questions I was going to ask you that. is the difference between a newsroom of 20 years ago and a newsroom today. Obviously, they're, they're going to be chalk and cheese. You wouldn't, wouldn't, the practices and the way things come together would be completely different now. Yeah, I think they are. I mean, I don't work in one and I haven't worked in one uh, for a long time, but I just had a message on. LinkedIn from an old colleague of mine from back in those early Canberra Times days, and he um, he was a sports reporter at the Canberra Times, and he's currently working on an exhibition that the museum there's doing about the Canberra Raiders. Um, and he was saying that he'd been in Canberra, and the Canberra Times, when I worked there in the um, in the mid eighties, had just moved out to the suburb of Fishwick, on the kind of industrial outskirts of Canberra, so they'd left their high street premises in the city and moved out there, much like, you know, following the whopping model, you know, um, when the newspapers left the centre of London, left Fleet Street and moved out to Wapping, you know, which was the beginning of huge transformation in news media in the UK and in Australia, a lot of newspapers or some newspapers did the, the same and the Canberra Times was one and we had a swimming pool, we had tennis oh. courts, we had squash courts, we had barbecue areas, we had undercover parking. Um, it was this brilliant new building, new presses built to meet the future and my, my former colleague was saying, oh, had you heard, they've left those premises, they've abandoned that now and they're moving back into the centre of Canberra you know and I wrote back and said well of course they don't need presses and pools and there's no one to play tennis on the <laughs> tennis court anymore there's no money to maintain any of this um, infrastructure from the golden days of newspapers and if they want to remain relevant then being able to hang up your shingle in you know in the centre of Canberra at least you look like you've got your finger on the pulse you know you're back in the centre of town not in some kind of broken down old industrial site out on the outskirts. I mean, even here in Ballarat, the Ballarat Courier, which is a daily regional newspaper, um, closed its presses, I think, um, at the beginning of last year. Well, they've moved premises as well into a back into the city, back towards the centre, into a small set of offices. So the actual infrastructures are really changing. And do you, do you think... Newspapers could ever make a return? Would there ever be a space you could foresee in a way they could make some sort of comeback? Uh, look, I don't think that they'll go away, but I think that that, um, you know, that that model of producing the news is kind of Fordist. It's like the production line model. You know, when yeah. I worked at News 
Corporation in Sydney for the Australian, um, it was a lovely thing. You know, you get towards the end of our shift. We were on the fourth floor and um, the Daily Telegraph and the Sunday Telegraph were on the floor below. But the whole building would get this little hum, sort of would start to shake. Um, and it was the presses down in the basement starting up. And by the time you left the building, all the paper trucks were lined up around the block and there were the blue-collar workers loading the papers, you know. They were warm, you know. You'd pick up the papers and it was like bread. They were warm off the press and the trucks would be there to be actually taking the first edition um, out into, you know, regional New South Wales to get that first edition to Newcastle, to Wollongong, to Dubbo, to, um, well, you know, those presses left the city and journalists haven't felt the hum of a press in most places for a long, long time. I don't think that any of that's going to return. That's that's the past. Um, yeah, that's, that's definitely, yeah, it's lost a bit of its charm. Well, yeah, uh, you know, nostalgia is a dangerous thing. Um, but I think that in terms of their future, um, you know, they're becoming part of bigger media organisations. So, you know, we've seen the takeover recently of Fairfax by Nine, which has now become yeah. a really big corporation or even bigger corporation than it was, and that's a really diversified business. So I think newspapers are becoming part of those diversified businesses or they're if they're small, they're adopting different kinds of business models that are supported by a range of stakeholders from philanthropy to different kinds of subscription models like memberships. Um, you know, there's quite a lot of interesting things going on in the space. You know, we've got money coming in now thanks to the bargaining code. Um, so Google and Facebook are now having to provide some level of regular and reliable funding to major news orgs. Oh, yeah, well, that's fair enough if they're going to use it, but everyone else has yeah. to pay for it, yeah. Yeah, so it's a really, yeah, so it's a very dynamic, changeable space. But, yeah, that idea of, you know, 400 journalists working on the floor like they were in Sydney on a big paper like The Australian, you know, even in the mid-'90s, that's gone. Wow. You, you, you touched on the nine now owning Fairfax. How... If you were working at The Age, um, I use The Age as a reference because it was always a newspaper that I used to like. Um, do you, would it have been, I suppose, from then to now, taking away all of the other shifts, but just looking at who's at the top of the management chain, would that be a night and day difference in the freedom or how that company would be run now? Oh, you've got me there. Like That's quite a big question and I'm really not across how the kind of how the top end of it is working. Um, but I would say that um, journalists and academics have expressed concerns recently about uh, the expertise at the top of some of these bigger companies not being media expertise. Yeah. So, you know, you've got big equity, equity partners and um, people with business interests uh, running the show, and that does yeah. make a difference. And... You know, I think at Fairfax now, you know, we've got for a former Liberal politician who um, is quite high up there and there have been questions raised about, I don't, yeah, just yeah, whose interests are being served and 
Uh, I think The Age has got a uh, moniker about being, you know, fiercely independent, that that's, that's sort of what it, what it sells itself on. So you'd hope that that, you know, that those guiding principles continued to be honoured. And I'm sure for the journalists and editors working there, that is their true north. Yeah, um, yeah. But, it, but the reality is it's a commercial business and these are difficult times. Because, yeah, that was one of my things was um, so when you look at, I suppose, a, a, a story in a newspaper, and this is someone asking who knows nothing about how that whole world comes together, if is if you like, does that story the ultimate direction? Does that lie with one person? If you if you come in and say, oh, "I want to do a story on," you could pick any topic. Even if you wanted to say the current that topic is everyone's talking about the vaccinations. Does someone at the top or in that newspaper or media company turn around and say, "No, we're not going to paint it in that picture. We're going to paint it as if it's be it good or be it bad." Is is there a person? that really steers that ship or is it left really to the individual to, I suppose, create the story as they feel it suits it, suits it best? Well, I think it's not black and white, but, uh, you know, definitely um, editors and section editors and the people that um, the people that set the news agenda, you know, who are often called the gatekeepers, um, yeah, they, they definitely have... Uh, you know, from day to day, agendas and positions that they want to take on things. And I guess as a brand, that's how you distinguish yourself as well. So media are always monitoring other media. Um, No one wants to be left behind and missing out on the story that's, you know, the front page news or heading the the 7 o'clock news bulletin. Um, So, yeah, journalists watch other journalists and that's why we get a fairly uniform diet of news i think yeah. is that there are you know it's not it's it's a tacit agreement about what's news and it's um what underlies that is what we call news values and they're not a given um but you know they largely dictate what what journalists see as newsworthy um and individual journalists again you know depending on how senior they are depending on what part of the media that they're working in, um, and depending what day it is, will have more or less autonomy in terms of what they choose to go out and cover and the way that they cover it. Um, But, yeah, for most people, I don't think that the level of autonomy is great. You're basically sent out and told, you know, we want you to go out and cover this. Um, If you've built up a round and you've got great contacts and they're coming to you and saying, hey, you know, there's this story that no one's told um, and you're a trusted uh, leader in your field and your media organisation is probably very happy for you to go out and pursue those stories that come to you through your contacts. So it's a little bit of both and that's probably a really healthy thing. News organisations in a way are fairly flat. They're not very hierarchical. So, you know, for someone like me moving into a workplace like a university, Universities are quite hierarchical and they're also quite bureaucratic. But when you think about the job that a journalist does or a news organisation does more broadly, they need to be able to respond quickly. They need for people to be frank and fearless and not be frightened to challenge authority or ask questions, um, which is where you get those kind of newsroom cultures that are portrayed on TV where people can be quite 
abrupt or rude to each other, you know, those kind of yeah. representations. I think we've just had the newsreader and there's been some brilliant acting of those kind of um, exchanges in a newsroom. Um, that's made possible and is kind of necessary because there have to be quick decisions made, quick debates about what's in, what's out of the news, um, and that's what gives it its unique culture. And one, one thing that I'm interested with, like you've got a journalist who obviously works very hard, puts a story together, and especially in newspapers, um, the story goes out and it's like it, it, there must be when you're starting out, someone must pull you aside and teach you how to deal with the whole, it, it, it sort of peaks. You've got this story, you've worked so hard, you've put it in a newspaper, it's gone out, but the next day that newspaper's gone. Does that anyone that ever ever talks about that, you know, that emotion that becomes attached to the story that you've put out and, and waiting for something to come back of it and just having to let go? Well, I think, you know, people talk about today's news being yesterday, um, today's news being tomorrow's fish and chip wrapper. You know, that's yeah. one of the ways that that gets talked about. And that's true, but I would have to say that in digital space, that's a bit different because... Once something goes online, it's basically there forever. Yeah, true. Yeah, yeah, that is true. Yeah, um, I didn't think of it like that. Um, and the other thing just always to bear in mind is that having your story in the newspaper or uh, coverage of an event that might have shaped your um, life, for the people that are in the news um, and affected by the news, um, the story might disappear but the impact in people's lives of events and information can continue for years, for their whole yeah. lives. Um, and then there's the whole kind of below-the-line commenting. So your story might have been published um, today, but it might actually kick off some kind of debate um, either just, you know, within the, new, within the newspaper itself or in the comments section or more widely in society. So... Sometimes things have got long legs, stories have got long legs, and they do travel and they do stick around. So that's been a big change. Um, so, for example, I've done some research around, um, particularly in regional areas, um, with court reporting, um, the power of news organisations to, um, to shame people through their reporting of a minor issue. So... You know, say you've been to Kmart and stolen a packet of three tea towels and you go to court and, you know, it's all really embarrassing, but the magistrate finds that, yeah, you did steal the tea towels, but you're an otherwise good person, so they give you what's called a non-conviction, um, which is like a chance to kind of rehabilitate yourself out of the public gaze. It's like a, it's like a get-out-of-jail card, literally, but what happens when the little local paper, um, which has the complete right to report that, reports that and puts it on page five of um, the newspaper in a small country town where everybody knows one another um, and everybody reads that? It's like the newspaper's got more power in a way um, in punishing the person um, by reporting yeah. that non-conviction. Um, and that example of the tea towels is a, a, a real one from the Warrnambool Standard newspaper a few years ago. Of a woman, a woman did she stole some tea towels and 
got a non-conviction and the paper reported that. And then when that goes online, as I was saying before, that's sort of there forever. So if that yeah. woman then goes to apply for, um, wants to rent a house or apply for a job, that non-conviction, you know, found guilty but non-conviction for stealing those tea towels, in a sense, exists as a record then in um, digital media that can be accessed by other people making making decisions or judgments about you. Yeah, um, so yeah, definitely. And human nature will always gravitate to the negative first before it sees the positive. So, yeah, it can be a very big stain on someone. Yeah, so in the paper one day, fish and chip wrapper the next day in digital space. Mm, no, that fish and chips has got quite a long life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things I know that you spoke a lot about on um, 3CR was the regional newspapers and how much they rely on on the printed media. Um, is that still, do you, you know, is there still that hard preference for those areas towards the printed media as opposed to digital? Absolutely. I'm on a project that's um, in partnership with an organisation called the Country Press Association of Australia, which is a peak body for small independently owned newspapers. Um, so there's about 140 family-owned, like really small independent papers wow. um, in Australia. And then News Corporation own a, lo a lot. So they own about 170 country newspapers and um, Australian community media, um, which is the old Fairfax, they also have quite a big stable of small papers. I'm talking country newspapers that some of them only publish once or twice a week or a tri-weekly. Okay. Um, yeah. um, and, you know, there's a lot of concern about some of these small newspapers, particularly with COVID. And we've seen, you know, as you would know, so many small newspapers closing their doors or yeah. moving to online only particularly the news corporation ones. Anyway, we, as part of that project um, last year, we conducted a national survey of readers of those country newspapers. So that's important to point out because these are people that are kind of rusted on readers. We didn't just go out and ask people in those areas what they thought of the newspaper. It was the, it was the readers themselves. And we had um, about 4,200 responses to the survey and a very key finding from that survey was not only that people had a clear preference for print, and that was across all age groups. So as you could, might imagine, like the older people in their yeah. 80s and 90s, it was like 95% or something of them preferred print. But even people in their 20s and 30s, still like, I don't know, it was about 55%, it was like 55% preference for print over online. So every age group you know, had this strong preference for print and we asked them whether they thought print was an essential service and then it shot right up. It was like 90-something percent of people agreed with the statement that a printed newspaper, local newspaper, was an essential service for their community. And do the sales reflect that? Is it a declining sales market or a steady market? Well, again, it's an uneven terrain. So because we're talking about so many different little newspapers um, across pretty much the whole of Australia, it really is a story of mixed fortunes. Yeah. So some of those newspapers are experiencing quite great growth in circulation and sales and others are really struggling. So it depends, I guess, on who's running the show, 
um, what's happening in the community itself, like the you know newspapers as commercial products in these smaller communities are are an important part of the business community. So I guess the health of the businesses in those areas, supporting the advertising base for those newspapers is also really important. Yeah, yeah. I I I, I don't doubt. Um... The benefit of a newspaper. I mean, I think when you read a newspaper, it exposes you to so much more than you would see if you were digital only. I mean, digital tends to be fine if you know what you want and you've seen it and it's got your attention, but the, the start to finish of a newspaper can take you through so much and expose you to so much that you would not have seen otherwise. Um, so, yeah, I, I would always gravitate if there was the option of picking up a, an actual newspaper and going through it from start to finish. Yeah, well, those small country newspapers that only come out, of, you know, once a week or twice a week, you know, they tend to sit around and um, they get picked up and read by lots of people in households or coffee shops or around town. And what, some of the questions that we asked went to how people use the newspaper in other parts of their life, and that was quite funny. We got some responses. So we'd said, oh, you know, do you use your paper for recycling or, um, you know, lining your kitty litter tray or you know, all of these other things that, you know, cleaning your windows. We had a long yeah. list of things that people use newsprint for and um, someone contacted us and said they were very cross that composting wasn't on the list of things that they could tick for how they use the newspaper. So, <laughs> yeah, as a material object, they, you know, people also enjoy that materiality of the newspaper. Yeah, yeah. And to ensure, I guess, the survival of those small regional ones, do, do they look at, and this might be a silly question because I, again, not know the industry, but do they look at like a, like collabs? Do they look at saying, okay, well, let's not um, do a buyout or let's merge three or four and all create one, one printing platform, one, you know, that then can be spread amongst these districts to, to ensure that they all survive? Is that, is that ever something that pops up? Well, that's certainly, I call it a centralisation and dispersion model, and that's certainly been how some of the bigger players have dealt with things. So, you know, ACM and News Corporation have done a lot of that. So I mentioned before about presses closing down. You know, they've centralised those sort of backroom functions like advertising, marketing, printing, and even some journalism functions. Um, and people living in regional areas particularly will notice that you, you know, you might be um, in one state and you're getting, you're getting material from another state of Australia. Um, for example, in the ACM stable, I'm living here in Ballarat in Victoria um, and a regular column over the last couple of years running on a Saturday in the Ballarat Courier has been um, a prominent journalist who writes a column in Newcastle, well, I'd imagine that column's been syndicated out across lots of different ACM um, mastheads. And so you have this kind of centralisation of some functions and then a kind of disperse. The dispersal is the sharing of, um, of resources, you know, between a number of different places. The, the problem that happens with really local media when you do that kind of thing is that it ceases to be quite so local and people really pick up on that. Um, and if people don't think it's really relevant to them 
and a really local product from from within and about their community, that's when they start disengaging from it. So it's a bit of a wicked problem. Okay, so you do have to keep that local relevance. That's a, a crucial thing to keep the, the reader with you. Yeah, so some of the literature that I've looked at in my research um, is actually around niche marketing of different kinds of products. And I think that that's a really good way of looking at some of this particularly local commercial news. It really is a niche product. And the advantage that you've got is your localness. That is your niche. So if you start whittling that away, you're losing your market advantage. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? And I guess that's probably overlooked a lot of the times, one of the, you know, one of the simple basics that just would get overlooked a lot. Well, I think when you're trying to save money, you know, I was talking at the beginning about sending in the bean counters and yeah. you know, everybody understands the imperatives of business, you know. You can't, you can't have these things without, you know, it's a commercial product. It's got, it's got to be funded. It's got to be supported. You need money to run it. Um, and so if you, you know, we all know, I'm not very good at economics, but we all know, you know, you've got your incomings and your outgoings. Yeah. And, you know, you've got to do a little bit better than draw even, don't you, to make yeah. it work Yeah, yeah. Um, for it to be in your interest. And so it's very appealing to think, well, I can cut costs there, but there's a trade-off. Y- yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. yeah. I guess maybe there's always a trade-off. Yeah, it seems, doesn't it? All, and I guess you just have to try and balance which which way you want to go and what you're willing to sacrifice and what works and what doesn't. But doing things, um, it, it's amazing how often people keep doing the same things that someone else has already done that didn't work and, and they expect it to be different. But I wanted to quiz you on, so one of the things you um, that you specialise in is um, is conceptualising how journalism affects different parts of society. Obviously, that um, I suppose that's going to tie into where I wanted to, to question you is, how much influence does the government have on journalism? Well, you know, we like to think of ourselves as a really free and amazingly fair country, but in terms of press freedom, Australia's actually fairly low down on the world ratings for press freedom. Oh, and you might think, well, how, what does this have to do with our government? Um um, and it has to do with governments to some extent and some of the laws that we have, particularly around court reporting and um, defamation and some of these kind of laws that really govern what journalists can say and do. Yeah. So in that sense, government has an impact on journalism that a lot of people would say some of those laws have a negative impact on press freedom and I think they would be right. Um, On the other hand, because of the breakdown of the business model that supports journalism, not just here, it's around the world, governments are having to get more involved in helping to sustain journalism, which is understood to have a really important kind of democratic function. You know, it's we live in a complex world and the way that most of us get to know and understand what's happening in our world is through the media. And so if that fails, you know, we're all in trouble. Governments and our government recognises that. So 
Um, in recent years, we've had a lot of policy reform and policy discussion, which is ongoing. We've had quite a few different Senate inquiries and things like that, looking into ways that we can make sure that we do have a healthy and sustainable media sector in Australia. Um, there's been direct grants through the um, through the Innovation Fund that um, our Communications Minister Paul Fletcher's department has made available. So I think um, over three years, about 48 million went out to regional and small publishers to help to support them to make their businesses stronger. And the ACCC has recently recommended another 50,000, 50 million, I should say, in grants to support um, journalism. So there's some of that kind of direct funding going on. But another really important and long-standing funding of Australian journalism that is one of those things people don't think about or talk about very much, but it's actually worth a lot of money, um, is government advertising. So for newspapers, like if, if government is putting out a tender or doing something by legislation, they are required to advertise that in the relevant media, in the relevant newspapers. It's like a silent subsidy, all of this advertising that goes out to newspapers. And what's interesting is that some governments around the country are starting to scale that back and it's really hurting the small guys. So in states like South Australia, they're thinking, oh, well, more people are getting their news via Google or online, so why don't we just put our advertising online yeah. um, and not in the paper because that's not actually reaching as many people and that's really hurting the small guys. So there's been a bit of an academic kind of research pushback to try to shine a light on this important source of government funding um, and to be saying, hey, you, you know, you, you've got all this rhetoric about wanting to support media, you need to keep putting your advertising dollars um, into local newspapers if you want to help them to survive. That's a really important source of revenue. With, with reference to, the, I suppose, the laws and, and all the rest of it that make it quite hard for the media, I, I met a cameraman once um, and he was telling me, this was a while ago now, so I don't remember the exact details, but he said to me how something along the lines, he said, oh, most people would be horrified to know about the laws that get passed at midnight sittings between the two parties that actually take away what the media can freely tell you. Um, and he, he gave me an explanation about, uh, and I think it was crossing into defamation, and he was saying if, if, if I had a story about someone in, say, the Prime Minister or, or a politician, um, and before that story got out, I could be arrested and held for X amount of time, um, basically under various laws, um, and that information wouldn't be allowed to come out. That's using a very, very uh, rough summary of what he was trying to tell me, and this was a few years ago. But he made the point that a lot of people have no idea about how these laws are getting passed that suit the two big parties and can make it quite hard for, for a journalist to report what they actually want to report. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, there is some truth to that. Um, so, yes, we do have really um, complex defamation laws that don't really work in the interests of, um, the, uh, you know, freedom of expression of the media. And the other thing that journalists have been and their organisations like the Journalists um, Union, the MEAA, have been 
trying to get better laws to protect journalists and their sources. So, you know, in this country, being a whistleblower is a really noble but really, really dangerous um, position to adopt. And if you're a journalist and you're... um, and you've got, and you've been given papers, or, or you've been told something um, by a source that you're wanting to protect. You know, we saw it with um, Annika Smethurst from the Australian when the AFP raided her yeah. home in Canberra. You know, they can come in, they can seize those documents, they can um, put the journalist in jail, they can put them on the stand and demand that they um, reveal who their source is. Yeah. And this is why we're so low down on the on the press freedom league table, which is amazing because people do have this perception that Australia is very, you know, with everything, even your fruit and veg, pesticides, and this and that. There's an assumption that we are the cleanest, the greenest, the easiest, the the freshest, and the the mostly the freest. Um, but when you start going down the rabbit hole, there's a lot of these little things that that um, Joe Public doesn't know, and you know, I had one guy say to me, oh, that's because the government governs for the government, not for the people. Um, but how do you ever change that? How do, is that? Is that once those laws are in and that method is, I mean, obviously they're going to be very reluctant to change laws that would make their lives harder. Um, is, is there any, anyone pushing that that campaign? Is there is there, you know, people like troublemakers making it hard in, in the media world that are constantly trying to change that? for the better for the people? Oh, look, I think that there are, you know, constantly, or there's a couple of um, uh, kind of not-for-profit organisations in Australia, you know, academics, um, journalists, people working together um, to lobby and to shed light on some of these um, issues. It's ongoing. So people like Peter Grester, who's um, a professor of journalism at the University of Queensland, um, he, you know, he, for example, leads one group that are very concerned about press freedom, not only in Australia but around the world. And you'll know that he was held in detention yeah. under awful circumstances in Egypt for quite a long time. But yeah, good people like Peter Grester are constantly um, bringing these kinds of issues to public attention and policymakers' attention. You know, wherever possible. So. Um, Yes, and media organisations themselves. I think um, with the um, with Cardinal Pell's um, case and all the brouhaha over that. I think you'll remember that um, all of the major newspapers. It was a kind of a national first, coordinated, and all ran front pages that were basically blacked out. They all did it on the same day. Yeah, I do remember that. Like I was going to ask you about that. Yeah, make a very clear public statement about the fact that. Um, yeah, that they weren't able to tell the Australian public about those court cases or what was going on. I've got friends in the UK who are journalists that were telling me because it was all being published over there. But um, so people in the UK and around the world could know about the Pell case, Um, but people in Australia weren't allowed to even know it was happening. Which is, and and that hasn't changed, is it? All that that big hoo-ha they made with those blackouts in the papers, that that hasn't changed anything that if that case was to happen tomorrow or next week, it would be different? Well, I think, um, you know, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that um, 
even our High Court has determined that um, that uh, the Cardinal Pell and his people could sue the newspapers for defamation. I think there are defamation um, proceedings, or you know, breaches of the of the court orders. Um, anyway, I think that there is legal action pending. Uh, I'm not completely across that, so you might not. But I think I'm pretty sure that that is the case. Jeez, that's a, yeah, that's incredible. It's yeah, you, because yeah, like a lot of things, when they go one way, it's, it's very hard to ever bring it back into the centre. You know, laws or anything, policies tend to push in a direction, and if it's even taking freedoms away from people, whatever it may be, it's always very hard to bring that back in once you've started travelling down that road. So that um, you know, I think I think we were always on that road, though. That's the thing; it's just intensified um, right. and become more difficult. But yeah. there have been some attempts to reform defamation law, in particular, because um, it was very confusing, and different states had different um, levels of legal proof for defamation. So, so there has been some reform, um, but yeah, it's still uh, a big can of worms, and Again, as news organisations uh, face such incredible resourcing challenges, where you know where big companies used to have deep pockets and could pay for Bob Hawke's third swimming pool or whatever he was, you know, laughing about being able to pay for because of his defamation actions against the Sydney newspapers. Um, you know, it's more and more difficult to find that money to to pay and to to represent yourself in court and have to pay the damages. Another thing I wanted to quiz you on is if you've got, let's say, a 25-year-old from 25, 30 years ago, that that 25-year-old would have most likely bought or been exposed to newspapers. He most likely would have watched, say, 60 Minutes or pretty much definitely he would have watched The Current Affair or Today Tonight and pretty much would have been, even when he was a kid, the news would have been on um, at home every night at 6 o'clock. That 25-year-old today, chances are, does none of that. Would not watch 60 Minutes, wouldn't watch A Current Affair, wouldn't buy a newspaper. Everything he sees or she sees is going to come from, um, I suppose, a social media, which, tell me if I'm wrong, I would probably say it's more like an opinion piece than a news piece, Um how does journalism cope with that? How, how do you get that message across to someone that doesn't have those traditional and probably more trusted um, channels of media that aren't there in today's market? Is that something that, that is an issue? Oh, it's a huge issue. So, um, uh, yeah, so there's lots of research happening around young people and media um, and what that tends to suggest is that, um, yeah, people people go to Google or people get their news through their Facebook feed and young people don't have the same kind of brand awareness or loyalty. So I think earlier you were saying, oh, I always liked the Age newspaper, you know, if I, I would read the, if I was in Melbourne, I'd read the Age. Or, and so people did have brand or do have brand loyalties but if you're getting your news through a feed I mean you might be noticing oh that's from the New York Times and um, that's from the Daily Telegraph and that's from 9MSN and that's from I mean you might be noticing that but there's a problem because we don't have the same brand loyalty yeah, in that okay. age group yeah. Um, yeah. 
And so that's a problem. But I guess, you know, coming back to the money story, um, you know, a big problem up until now has been that news organisations, traditional ones, are creating the content and platforms like Facebook and Google have been saying up until really recently and they're still not completely saying that they are. That They're saying, oh, we're just a platform, we're neutral, we're not a news provider. Um, and so that's why we've ended up, you know, really leading the world here in Australia with our media bargaining code that became legislation earlier this year to get these really, really rich organisations to actually pay for the content that they're, um, that they're hosting or using on their sites um, and that attracts advertising. So advertisers still know that people find, and young people too, people go searching for news that's relevant to them yeah. um, and that's still worth money. It's just that the money's not going to the traditional media, at least now with the bargaining code. Um, for many traditional media players, there now is a way for them, a mechanism for them to get their hands on some of that money and hopefully that will provide um, uh, a reliable and long-lasting source of revenue. So before when I was talking about the government coming up with these kind of three-year, oh, here's 48 million or here's 50 million, these are really short-term kind of fixes or yeah. short-term yeah. solutions. And what's great about the Media Bargaining Code, although it's probably not perfect and it does benefit the bigger players like News Corporation a lot more than the independent little country newspaper, um, but by the same token, at least it is, you know, a big step for the world towards getting the place where most young people are going to get their news, contributing to its production and the quality and the, the goodness of that news. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So hopefully it's on the, because that was going to be my next thing is, is you know, the I suppose the near-term future, uh, the, the the health state of it. But, yeah, hopefully that is all going to contribute that it it can be a sustainable moving forward path for it and everyone can live, you know, they can all coexist and everyone can survive. Yeah, well, I think, you know, with a couple of events um you know, big world events recently. Obviously, you know, we're living in these um, COVID times and we've seen the dangers of misinformation with people taking awful cures, like fake cures that they've been told will cure COVID in some parts of the world and people have actually died. Um, and even what we saw with Trump and the White House earlier this year where people actually believe that Donald Trump won the election and there's all of this fake news and false information. You know, we saw it with our own eyes, what a dangerous world that can be. Yeah. That, yeah. that they were frightening images of where you've got people that are misinformed and and the awful shape that that can take. So it's a oh, really definitely. big issue for society yeah. that we have quality, reliable news and information. And I think the – and tell me if, if it's just me seeing this, but – the opinion, it seems to be like traditionally you had news, which was this is this and this is how it is, but now it's it's almost like it's split 50-50 with people presenting it as an opinion piece. And when you present an opinion, especially a lot of these media commentators, you know, they're very strong in their views and you can get people offside. So it's like news is now being filtered with the person presenting its opinion. And, and then even if you're on a platform or you're on Twitter and you're on Facebook and you start reading these comments, you start getting this pre-programming that, oh, this is, this is how the majority are thinking. It must be right. 
So it's almost like by opening it up to so many things, it's just created a, a big challenge in really knowing how to dissect what are the important parts of media. Yeah, and people need to be, people need a really good level of news literacy to be able to do that. And it's not just um, opinion that's sneaking in there. It's this style of news reporting that's about reaction. So something happens and the journalists go out and they look for reaction. So it was really interesting at a conference I was at a couple of years ago, um, Laura Tingle, who um, is now with the ABC, she reports, does a lot of work on the 7.30 report on the ABC, and she was a guest speaker. And Laura Tingle's been one of our finest journalists for decades. You know, she's had a long and distinguished career as a first a newspaper journalist and then with the ABC. And she stood up and she was talking, it was a, a media history conference, and she was saying, oh, you know, when I started my career and I was first reporting back in the 80s and the 90s, an event occurred and we went out and we reported that event, like we reported the event or a report, you know, she did a lot of and still does a lot of political reporting, you know, that something would happen in politics or a report would be launched or whatever and we would cover that. We We would report what the report said or what the parliamentary debate was and she was commenting on the same thing that you've raised and she said, now it's not like that, you know, now it's all um, opinion and commentary. And at that point in time, I was doing some research myself on um, that was looking at the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths in Custody, which handed down its final report in 1991. And I'd been into the State Library um, in Melbourne and I'd collected PDFs of all the front pages of the major newspapers around the country from that day in May 1991 when the report got handed down. I had them on my laptop as Laura Tingle was talking and and, and so I called them up and it was true. Like the reporting in 1991 of that very big news event was, you know, the Royal Commission's handed down the report and the report says this, 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 this and this and these are the recommendations. Full stop. That was the report. But if if you... (laughs) You know, I think at the time the um, Aged Care Royal Commission, which is also really important, was still happening at the time that Laura Tingle made this speech. And so I just had a look that day at the coverage and it was true what she was saying. There was no just straight report, report, report. It was all opinion about it and reaction to it. There was yeah. hardly anything that actually said this is what the report says or this is what happened in the hearing of the Royal Commission today. Yeah, it's really changed. Yeah, that's worrying, isn't it? And how do you ever pull back, that back and swing it around again? Because it's, yeah. I don't know. Maybe that is part of the answer to getting back to um, an agreed set of facts. Maybe that's what, what, as a society, we kind of need to be thinking about a little bit more. Can we agree on a set of facts? Because we're never going to agree on opinions. And yeah, it's a healthy thing that, that there's lots of opinions out there and it's a diverse society and my view on things and your view on things. We don't need to agree, but if we're both working from the same agreed set of facts, we yeah. can have a really good debate. We can have a really good conversation, even if we walk away from it not agreeing with each other. You know, the terms of the debate are clear, transparent, fair, um, and we can move forward. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Let's hope that that's um, 
that's something that comes back in the future because it's um yeah it seems to be going down a very murky path at the moment well lisa i, w- I don't want to keep you much longer because thank you very much for your time i really appreciate you um, putting time aside out of your day to come on and have a chat oh it's been great meeting you and having a chat with you francis thank you for the opportunity Thanks very much, everybody, for sticking to the end of the show. I hope you enjoyed it, uh, perhaps learned something that you didn't know. Um, I am working frantically on some old uh, episodes that I still have not brought to light, um, and there is a list of people that I still have not got back to to book in times for new episodes. Um, so I am trying my best to get those out as fast as I can, and I do thank you very much, especially those that have stuck to the end. If you do like the show, please feel free to share it amongst others. That That is uh, the only um, way that this show will grow, and your support in that area is much appreciated. I look forward to speaking in the next couple of weeks.